cannot hold the vasty fields of France. In today's reading from Isaiah, the prophet is similarly longing for something spectacular to overwhelm the ordinary. And he begs God to intervene, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations might tremble at your presence. Isaiah lives in a time when God's chosen people are increasingly dictated to rather than really determining their own path. And so he longs for God to descend and to rescue his people. Exit your heavenly refuge, O God, says Isaiah. Come down, make the mountain quake, make the fire burn, cause trembling among those that oppose your people. But then his words shift, and it's interesting. If you look at verse 3, he says, When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, and the mountains quaked at your presence. So Isaiah here repeats the line he used in verse 1, but now he puts it in the past tense. The mountains quaked at your presence. This is not about what he hopes God will do, but what God has already done. In other words, he's saying that the hope of my heart, that desire that God would rend the heavens and come down and change our reality, that's happened before. Of course, Isaiah is referencing the defining events of ancient Israel. The exodus from Egypt when God came down and did awesome things that we did not look for. So God brought them out of the oppression of Egypt under the Pharaoh who had enslaved them. And after he brought them out of Egypt, he led them to Mount Sinai. And he gave them his law and the mountain quite literally quaked at the presence of God. So Isaiah is saying, while we do not see this happening right now, We know God has done it before. And so he can do it again. He's that kind of God. Then he goes on to describe how God cares for us. Look at verse 4. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God beside you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. So, Isaiah is saying God's desire here is clear. He cares for us. He wants to meet us where we are and to meet our needs. But notice that God also requires that we join him in this. Look at the conditional language in that reading I just read there. He acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways. In other words, Isaiah is saying, this is not a one-sided story. Think back to the beginning of Scripture. When God called Adam and Eve, or when he called Abram and Sarai to go to a land they had not seen, when he calls Samuel, listen in the night, or David, leave your sheep, each time God is showing his desire for relationship with his people, and he's saying, I need you to choose me over others. It's precisely that the prophet is telling the people that we have not done. We have not waited for him or joyfully worked righteousness or remembered him in our actions. We've not sought relationship with him above all else. And that's what he goes on to say. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time and shall we be saved? We have all become like one 
who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you've hidden your face from us, and you've made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. This portion begins by noting God's anger at our sin. He wants relationship with his people, and what have we done? We've sinned, and we've remained in that sin a long time. We've become unclean, and we've remained unclean. And so he says there's no one who calls on your name, who rouses himself, makes some effort to take hold of you. Isaiah is saying we've taken no initiative toward God, despite his many gifts to us. The situation's bad here. Who shall be saved, Isaiah says. And he emphasizes it through three devastating images. First, he says, even our righteous deeds, the best about us, is like a polluted garment. In other words, it's unacceptable in itself. It's ready to be discarded, and that's, that's our best. And then he compares us to a dead leaf, which is a pretty apt analogy for us in Minnesota right about this time of year, because you probably just got done raking those, right? Um, all those dead leaves, right? What are they good for? Nothing. They just blow away. If you leave them long enough, sometimes they blow into your neighbor's yard, right? And it becomes his problem. Um, Isaiah says, just as the wind easily sweeps such leaves away, so our iniquities are sweeping us away. In our own merit, that's how things are. We're blown out of God's presence. And then he says, third, because we refuse to call on God, God hides his face from us, and this causes us to melt from our sin. We're just disappearing. So together, these three images present a very clear picture of decay and death. Now, obviously, this is not a happy picture. You might be thinking, like, I thought we were supposed to enjoy Advent. I thought this was supposed to be a good season. It is. Um, but we have to start here. We have to start by examining ourselves and reflecting and saying, who are we before God? What is he calling us to? It's better to realize this and to look seriously at what is God calling me to examine in my own life so that we can then deal with it rather than pretend things are fine when they are not. As a lot of you know, I grew up as a missionary kid in Senegal in West Africa. And in Senegal, um, hospitals had this terrible, terrible reputation. People saw them as places you went to die, right? And so, of course, then nobody wanted to go to the hospital, naturally. Um, and admittedly, medical care in Senegal was not as good as the kind of care we enjoy here in the United States. Um, but it wasn't that bad. I mean, those poor hospitals had gotten a really bad rap. But part of it was the self-perpetuating dynamic, right? People were suspicious of the new and the different, right? And so they didn't want to go. And then they would put it off and put it off and like, oh, those symptoms aren't that bad. They're not that bad. I'll try this home remedy or that, you know, this other person. And then when they, the pain would get so excruciating, they'd finally go. Often it was really serious. And by that point, there wasn't a lot the hospitals could do to help. And so, of course, then that fed that vicious cycle. We don't want to do that spiritually. We don't want to be like that, to wait so long that we can't deal with it. Far better to acknowledge, to confess, to turn from our sin, to see our dirty garments, our sinful life, as God sees it, like a faded leaf, like something melting away, and to plead with God, as the psalmist does, restore us, O God, let your face shine, that we may be saved. Or as the Coverdale puts it, we shall be whole. And I love that image, right, of 
restore us so that we can be who we ought to be, so we can be whole, so we can be the people you've created us to be. And that's exactly where Isaiah goes in verses 8 and 9. I'm going to read the end of verse 9 as well, which we didn't include, um, isn't in the lectionary reading. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay. You are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look. We are all your people. So notice first how Isaiah addresses God here. O Lord, you are our Father. He begins with that relationship that we have with God. I mean, yes, in our fallenness, we're like people dressed in these unacceptably dirty clothes, and we melt and we're blown away. That's, that's true, but thank God, it's not the whole story. There's a lot more. For God made us, and he called us, and he wants a relationship with us. And so Isaiah uses the analogy of God is our Father, and he says, we are his people. He cares for us. And then he gives this other really powerful image, that of the craftsman and the craft, or in this case, the potter and the clay. The potter gives value to the clay because of the time and the effort and the skill that he pours into it. And Isaiah is saying, we too have value because we are God's, and he cares for us like that. He's poured into us in that way. So in our fallenness, we may be like those dirty clothes and that dead leaf and that melting, but that's not who we are. And so Isaiah says to God, here's who we are. We are all the work of your hand. Which brings us to his closing appeal. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord. Remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look. We are all your people. So Isaiah here acknowledges our fallenness, and then he asks God, remember your mercy. Remember your love toward us because we are yours. He's frankly acknowledged our need for deliverance, acknowledged our sin before God. And then he says, God, we're still the work of your hand. We're still your people. We're still the ones you want a relationship with. And for that to happen, what has to happen? God has to intervene. We come right back to verse one. Rend the heavens and come down change our reality so that we can seek you, so that we can do what's right, so we can have a righteousness that is something other than filthy clothing. The reading in Isaiah just pounds home this emphasis that the relationship we have with God starts with him and his initiation. Look at all the your statements about God in this passage. Your presence, three times. Your name, twice. Your ways, your face, your hand. And then he talks about both your adversaries, who we hope you'll show up and deal with, and your people. Love us. Make us into who we are supposed to be. Make us whole. In a similar way, in our epistle reading today, we saw Paul celebrating how God has entered our reality. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Notice what Paul says here, that it's both God's work and our participation. It's God who calls us to be saints. It's God who calls us into the fellowship of Jesus Christ. And then Paul says, and we are to join with all the church in also calling on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is truly a relationship. 
So Advent is a season where we're really called in a special way to prepare our hearts before God. We're reminded that we have fallen short in the year that's passed as we do every year. And this is one of those things you can say as a preacher because I look out and I don't know what ways you've fallen short, but I can guarantee you have. And I know that I have, right? We've all fallen short in this last year and you can all think of those examples, probably many of them. Once again, we have to come and we have to confess. We have sinned in what we have done and in what we have left undone. And we know something. We know that we need help. We need to wait for God and we need him to come down and to make the mountain quake. And as we say that, we know that he's the God who has already come down. He's already made the mountain quake. And so when we think about this, God's part in this is not in doubt. It's not like, oh, is he going to come? Is he not going to come? He's going to come. The question is, are we going to prepare our hearts to be set apart for him? That's the question. So Advent also reminds us in all this that since he is the Lord and the Father, the one who gives us the gift of life and breath and everything else, and the one who calls then it also follows the timing is his. And Sonia and I didn't coordinate today, but she did a lovely job of just kind of bringing that out and saying, we don't know. When is this going to happen? How is this going to happen? And that's true both of the end of Christ returning in glory, but also true of how Christ shows up in our life. We don't know. We don't know when he shows up and how he's going to choose to show up. But we are called to prepare and to trust and to wait for him. And that's the point we hear Jesus making so clearly in our gospel reading. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Father, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves his home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and he commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. The gospel readings these last few weeks have been just chock full of the theme of waiting for what is beyond us, something we can't control, but we have to wait for The virgins, waiting for the bridegroom, though they don't know when he's going to come. The servants, waiting for the master to return and see how do they do with the talents that he gave to them. The sheep and the goats, waiting for the judgment of the king. And now Jesus tells the story of servants commanded to be ready for the master to return at any moment. And in case we might miss the point, Jesus looks at his disciples. He looks at us and he says, stay awake. I began with a few lines from the remarkable opening chorus to Shakespeare's Henry V, where Shakespeare acknowledges this gap between the story he wants to tell and what the audience will actually see on stage. And in a performance like that, the action, of course, the initiation is still always going to be with the actors. They're the ones performing. They're the ones on stage. The audience is, of course, watching. Yet in that invitation, in the opening chorus, Shakespeare has the chorus beg the audience to join in the work, telling them, let us on your imaginary forces work. Think, when we talk of horses, you see them. Peace out our imperfections with your thoughts. Shakespeare is saying, while we will perform for you, and we're going to do that our part, for this to work, for you to really get the big story I want to tell you, You cannot merely sit there and receive it. For the story to become real for you, 
You have to stay awake and participate in it and enter into it with your imagination in a way that is unimaginably greater than the call Shakespeare is issuing to his audience in that chorus. God is calling us in this Advent season, join me in the work I'm doing in your lives. He calls us to enter into that relationship with him, and he says to us, stay awake, be ready, listen for my call, prepare yourself to call on me. So Church of the Redeemer, as we enter into this Advent season, let us prepare ourselves for God's work in us and for us and through us. As Jesus told his disciples, look for the master's appearance at unexpected times in unexpected places. Stay awake. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.